once you give them all this money, power, and the ability to control millions of people, uh, you've then taken away any check and balance that might exist to them not being nice. And who's attracted to that position of power? The greatest psychopaths on the planet. This is Monica Perez, joined today by Keith Knight, who writes and podcasts for the Libertarian Institute under the banner, Don't Tread on Anyone. I certainly think we can agree there. You've heard Keith before on this show and probably many others as well as his own work. Hello, Keith. Thank you so much for being here. How are you and what have you been up to lately? Monica, thanks so much for having me. I was doing a uh, tour with the uh, LP Mises Caucus. Um, going around to Nashville, Chicago, New York. That was the last thing that uh, that, that I have uh, really been up to. And now we're just scheduling Freedom Fest, Pork Fest, and Young Americans for Liberty. So uh, how do you how do you do that all and still have a day job? Because I think you still have a day job. I do still have a day job. I'm hanging by the skin <laughs> of my teeth on that one. My gosh. If, if he ever says I'm fired, I'll be like, well, what the heck took so long on this? I travel <laughs> like three weeks out of the month. Um, That's crazy. But also you've actually expanded your offerings, it seems to me, either on the Libertarian Institute or related to Don't Tread on Anyone, because when I went to read an article, I found a lovely uh, extended podcast with video and slides on the subject that I wanted to talk to you about today. So what's up with that? Is everything you write now also in podcast form or what are you up to there? I have no consistency with what I do. And every time I tell people <laughs> okay. what I'm going to do, maybe I just have to, uh, I need to see a therapist, why I intentionally let people down and give them uh, false ideas of what I myself am doing. It's hard enough to guess about, well, what's going to happen with Ukraine? It's like, okay, what am I going to do for my podcast? No clue. Fair enough. And <clears throat> actually, I do the same thing. And I feel like I will say things out loud because I think it will make me do them. <laughs> you yes. know what I mean? So I'll just be like, oh, my gosh, I'm totally <clears throat> going to start this series on false flag flashbacks every Friday. And then I don't do any. And people send me a little like, what the hell? I'm like, you know what? If I just kept my mouth shut would have been fine. Anyway, so, but I did uh, want to talk to you about this and we did follow through. It was the name, I think the name of the podcast is The State is the Health of War, which is funny because of course the classic is, I guess it was Rothbard, was uh, War is the Health of the State. And a lot of things for me fell out of just starting with the title and everything in it. I went through it kind of, um, you know, item by item that you brought up. And I want to talk to you about these specifics, a lot of talking points there, but tell me just overall what your, what your big picture point was in the, in this story. And then we'll get into the details. The main thing is that we're constantly told that the private sector, the voluntary sector is very greedy, predatory, isolationist, individualistic, and very dog eat dog. And that's why you need a state. Uh, this way we're not all fighting each other. However, if you look at the biggest fights that are sometimes so big, they're referred to as wars or mass conflicts. Uh, you see that government is involved in the overwhelming vast majority of these. It should be the opposite, according to statist theology, where it should be like Amazon and Walmart are going to war and then 
Quick Trip and Circle K have a big blowout and tons of uh, thousands of people die. And then the government steps in and then settles everything. And then they bring us back to the peaceful equilibrium. But the opposite's true. Governments are constantly trying to bring us into uh, violent conflict for the most ridiculous reasons. And I go through a number of historical examples throughout the speech. So the question is, why do we see this pattern across so many countries today and across so many countries throughout history? And there are five things that I say uniquely applies to the state, which does not apply to other organizations, which makes it more likely for them to go to war than if they did not have you know, these unique aspects. The first thing is access to a central bank. If you read the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, it's not just that this is a large institution which allows people to cooperate more efficiently. What it actually does is it gives one group of people, the Federal Reserve, a legal monopoly on who gets to print the money uh, for the nation as a whole. Those dollars then have to be paid for in taxes. So the fact that they have unique access to a printing press makes it much more likely that they will uh, be engaged in things that are unbeneficial because now they have to bear less of a cost. Technically, their own personal dollars will be worth less than they otherwise would be if you printed more. But that's a fraction of the effect. If you print a million dollars for yourself, yeah, the rest of your money is going to be microscopically worth less, but you'll get access to that million dollars. So that's the first uh, on the items that I say make wars more likely to occur because there's a state. And I would add to that in that specific example that it was intended to do so. So think about the timing there. 1913, the Fed, they... I mean, I was taught, I was taught at the knee of somebody who introduced me to Rothbard anyway, so maybe it's just my little world, but I was under the impression that the reason we even had the possibility of going to World War I or could do it without people really understanding the cost of it financially was the Fed. And then I'm not 100% versed in this, but I do recall reading, um, especially in the 2008 financial crisis, that there there a purpose of the Fed was actually to underwrite European banks. And I know that after the wars, I believe there was some cooperation between the Fed and like Montague in England to kind of shore them up after they, you know, completely overspent, recklessly spent the money of the government or the people or whatever in the name of the taxpayer on what I would say wars that were meant to serve purposes that taxpayers are not benefiting from. They're always doing us these favors. It's so nice of them. (laughs) But they, so the Fed was there, I think, not only, not only does it facilitate war, but it was there so it could facilitate the war. Oh, absolutely. I'm not familiar with that specific aspect, but that certainly makes sense looking at it from an incentives uh, standpoint. The second thing that makes wars more likely to occur because of a state is the concept of taxation. So it's not just printing the money, it's being able to collect money without people's consent. So whether they really love the war in Iraq, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, or they hate it, you're not able to determine whether they like it or love it because uh, they uh, they are uh, coerced into uh, funding it with uh, the threat of jailing them. I would feel like if any other organization in society did this, it would uh, sort of start to ring an alarm bells. You'd say, well, if this is so virtuous and you're not greedy, well, can I just opt out of funding such a thing? 
But of course, when you are less likely to have to bear the cost of something, you are more likely to engage in the activity, as economists have shown us for so long. The progressives get this all the time. They say, uh, if the cost of health care or housing is too high, then, uh, th- then people can't afford it. But when you say the same principle applies when the cost of going to war is low for the state, they're more likely to go to war. It's the same exact principle flipped on its head. That is the second reason. The third is the concept of forced labor in defense of the state. This is referred to as selective service or the draft or conscription, most recently instituted by Vladimir Zelensky on February 24th of 2022, as he brags about uh, he's doing so many great things for the nation. Uh, They say if Putin comes in, there would be very bad things and there might be tyranny and you'd lose your freedoms. And then he enslaves men by the millions. So this is a classic bait and switch. Comment on conscription. Okay, I have two questions. So one, or comments and two observations. Okay, so one is that a defensive war, so a just war, so we have, there's a concept, I, I forget, you know, I should have pulled my notes on this, but there's a concept that Ron Paul has referred to in Christianity called the concept of the just war. And it really basically has to be defensive and you actually have to have a possibility of, of winning. Like you can't even just, you can't even suicide the entire country out of principle for, to repel an invasion. But the basic thing is you can't, it can't be a war of aggression. That would not be a just war and a defensive war. I think just kind of like on its face, if somebody's trying to cross your borders, people are going to resist that. They're not just going to lay down and let themselves be rolled over. And uh, so a defensive war is far less likelier to need a draft anyway. And then I think the thing with the Zelensky that proves your point or supports what you're saying is that in, so I don't know if you're familiar with the Azov Battalion. Have you heard about the Azov Battalion? Okay, so these are real neo-Nazis. At least they have neo-Nazi insignia. Maybe they're, they're reformed. I don't know. But you see that, and I heard in your show that you were referring to Victoria Newland and Jeffrey Pyatt plotting who would join the government after they removed Yanukovych in Ukraine in 2014. And one of the three guys, it was Kleech, who was supposed to be outside, and he does remain the mayor of uh, Moscow. I mean, <laughs> Moscow, Kiev. And then there was um, Yatsenyuk, who was for a while there a prime minister, which is what they had said they wanted him on the inside. And then Tani Book was the one who they wanted to kind of rally the troops. But he was I, I don't know if he's. Yeah, he was actually he was the right sector. Guy. He's a literal he was, national uh, socialist. Not. Yes. Yeah. And and he was banned, I think, from this country at that time because of his, you know, Nazi bent, although there are pictures of him with with uh, John McCain. Anyway, so what I understand is so they made an alliance with these neo-Nazis. And when they were trying to enforce the coup with regular Ukrainian soldiers, the coup that replaced Yanukovych, the democratically elected president of Ukraine, in order to change the um government, they wanted to suppress the East, which was like Russian speaking and the coup government banned Russian and whatever. But the regular Ukrainian soldiers would not would not march into the East and suppress those people. They would actually lay down their arms or join the other side. So they had to activate the Azov battalion to because they had a different, you know, they had a really uh, 
an ideology that would allow them to fight against the minority in their own country. That was how they got around that. So it shows, I think, your observation or whatever, that if Zelensky did enforce a draft, it's not just going to be used against Russia because you wouldn't need a draft for that kind of defensiveness. If he's drafting them, he may be using them against their own kind, which is their own countrymen, which is why you'd need a draft because they're not going to volunteer for it. So draft draft is a moral hazard. It's not just forced labor, in my opinion, but it's it is how you get unjust wars. Yeah, it's like saying I need to be allowed to uh, kidnap people, and everyone I hang out with wants to hang out with me because I'm so fun and brilliant and hilarious to be around. It's like, well, then why the kidnapping? <laughs> And if you're right, why can't you get anyone to do it for you? <laughs> the third thing that uh, comes to mind that was the third thing. is, uh, I'm sorry, the fourth thing, is uh, compulsory schooling. So uh, this was Kamala Harris's claim to, flame, uh, claim to fame with, <laughs> um, uh, as far as truancy laws goes, this is when the state catches you not sending your kids to an approved school. So the vast majority are state schools. And in places like Arizona, I don't know how many of the other states, but Arizona, a relatively purple state, um, requires that you are districted. So w w depending on where your house is, you have to send a kid and it has to be to the school in your district, regardless of your feelings. So they say democracy is legitimate because it represents you, unlike a monarch who's just anyone. And then when you explicitly say, I don't like this school, I don't want to go there, I don't want to send my kids there something that actually affects you, then they don't give you any choice at all. They they still force you to fund it and they will force kids to, uh, to, to attend. And we know from the Prussian system, and I think even Adam Smith surprised me with this one. I remember the first time I read Adam Smith and he's like, well, we need to have public schools, government schools so that we can train the soldiers. And I was like, what? And I was young That's when what I they read thought that. Of it as, yeah. Yes. And that, and it's also oppression thing. So it's actually the education. And now when I, I have kids in the public schools, sometimes, when, you know, on and off, you see that what propaganda machines they are. Like there's very, I mean, in some of my extreme experiences, there's anti-learning in the, in the name of uh, political propaganda. Of course. They act like it's wokeism and stuff, but just even that, is divisive. It helps people get distracted from where their blood and treasure are being spent abroad. There's just so many, so many facets to how the propaganda and the education contribute to the war state. There are. And like the famous saying, he who pays the piper calls the tune. If the state is paying the teachers, it's extremely unlikely they're going to say, <laughs> yes. you know, the wars they get into, not just like, you know, the minimum wage yields inefficiencies, it's like, uh, okay, maybe they can do that. It's like, you know, the foundation of this thing is mass murder, and there's so much of it. Uh, that is something that you're very unlikely to say about your boss. So teachers end up propag propagandizing the masses to a very high degree because you have to fund it through taxation and the kids have to go from truancy laws. So compulsory schooling and state education make wars much more likely to exist. Just freaking imagine if the Catholic Church mandated everyone fund them and attend their schools. And we're like, <laughs> why do people like the Pope so much? And they're willing to do all this crazy stuff for the Pope. I have no clue. It's got nothing to do with mandatory Catholic school. Uh, of course. So this is the fourth of uh, the five pillars. 
Okay, so there, I just talked to a person from, a guy I like to talk to, Jeremy Kuzmarov, who is the managing editor of Covert Action Magazine online, which he comes, his perspective is from the left, but he's like old school anti-war left. And one of the articles he wrote recently was about how so thoroughly has the defense industry infiltrated and taken over kind of the university system that not only does it get all this funding and research and everything in the science, the STEM and all of that, but it actually has an influence over what is taught in the history classes. Mm -hmm. So he was really a bonafide professor. Like he went to Brandeis. He's got, I think he's got a PhD and he was a professor and he did a, did a class on the CIA and he got really basically never worked again. And one of the, one of the things that he was pointing out was how they, um, it's like the pharmaceutical companies and the media, just regular TV, like they, they pay for all the commercials so they control the news. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the theory. Oh, of course. And it, it's more often a meeting of the minds rather than like the president gets on a Zoom call with all however many thousands of teachers and says, here's what you're going to teach. Just like my boss has never said, look, this business is about making money. Don't insult me. I'll fire you. I have a fragile ego. Don't speak ill to me to the customers. There's just some things you know that, look, if I did that, the boss wouldn't be happy. The people who pay me wouldn't be happy. Customers wouldn't be happy. So there is this general understanding that, look, they're the advertisers. They're the people paying us. I'm going to toe this line and not insult them. And it's so hard once you're in there to get out of that. Yeah. And uh, and I would say that, yes, once you're in there, if you do have an awakening, you really have to give up everything, your life's work. I mean, it's hard to do that. I mean, I've seen that problem with parents and children. Like, you just cannot... You can't come to terms with mistakes that you've made that have like you've dedicated your life to it. Like it can really mess you up psychologically. But most people I don't even think have those awakenings. I think what happens is it's the true believers. It's the people who have like a logic ceiling, you know, or an ethical glass ceiling, my sister calls it, who are the ones who get promoted. It's not it's not the cutting edge thought leaders who are challenging, you know, speaking truth to power. It's the people who can truly articulate the existing paradigm in a way that pleases the people who make the decision as to who's promoted and who isn't. Yeah. And you can watch Jake Sullivan's recent interview with the Council on Foreign oh. Relations to see that he is the perfect guy for that role. He is just an absolute psycho who can ramble off things, who doesn't believe a damn thing. He can talk for 30 minutes without saying anything substantive, but substantial. But you don't realize until like two days later when you're like, what was that video even about that I watched? <laughs> he didn't say yeah. anything. I actually have a timestamp on your video, 50 minutes and 51 seconds, where you have a screen shot and you're reading from his speech. And I actually made a note, like, I want to take the time to go over that paragraph and just talk about how many things are wrong with what, what his argument justifying <laughs> world domination. It's so funny. Ex so I, we exactly. absolutely have to get I, that. I definitely want to get to that. But just the, the, the fifth pillar is the yeah. legal double standard that states usually have. So um, no, when it comes to uh, committing an act of murder, most people will say that's an unjust killing and therefore murder is wrong. You murder two people. That's even worse. Five people is even worse. But when governments engage in mass murder, uh, of mostly of innocent people or even murdering conscripts, it's never thought that, oh, gosh, you think Biden's going to go to jail for this? Like killing kids on uh, there was a drone strike 
um, August 29th, 2021, where I think Biden murdered like seven kids in Afghanistan, in Kabul, and uh, along with one uh, aid worker. And no one at all was like, oh, gosh, is he going to get impeached? I mean, Trump's getting in trouble for documents. <laughs> January 6th, right. was, Biden's in huge trouble. They might arrest him. Everyone has a general understanding. It's like they can basically murder anyone they want. So this legal double standard that uh, people have for the state is another reason wars are much more likely to occur and in a much worse fashion. That's it's really um, underappreciated what an amazing double standard that is, because I remember when Obama came in and one of the things that was a big talking point during his campaign was waterboarding and how cruel Bush was. And he stopped the practice. But the way, I mean, I, I would have to go back and strictly analyze it, do the research, but there is definitely a meme that emerged thereafter that instead of waterboarding, he just droned people. There was, and I know I've actually read this myself, there was a Tuesday morning kill list. And if you actually, so he was presented with people to kill. I think Anwar al-Awlaki was on that list and maybe his 17-year-old son. And this was a, a U.S. citizen who I believe, I'm confident, I remember reading this too, was an operative of, I think, the CIA was had a relationship with the CIA for whatever reason. I think a lot of this, even Guantanamo and stuff, is about people who know too much. That's why you can't like try them because they're not doing anything wrong. They just know too much. But they killed the 17-year-old son at a wedding and probably to prevent, you know, seeding a whole another you know, retaliatory frame of mind. But uh and I, and I read like the criteria for who gets to decide on this kill list. Like even if Obama doesn't sign off on it, it was, I think, I think Brennan, whatever role he was in at the time, maybe the head of the CIA, I think he might've had the authority to just uh, target people for murder. I mean, there is in the constitution you can issue and people used to make fun of Ron Paul for saying like, oh, he's chasing pirates. They are pirates. Pirates are privateers. You get a letter of mark and reprisal and you actually, there's a process for that. You can't just, somebody decides. I mean, they could do that to any, especially US citizens, which I don't like drawing that distinction anyway. But um, and then on one of your slides, you pointed out just one like moment in time, the most conservative numbers available in 2016, there were, uh, uh, which I 2016 was. Yeah, that was still Obama. Uh, there were 12,000 bombs that he dropped on Syria and 12,000 on Iraq. And these are countries that I, I believe I don't know what our status is with Iraq, but Syria. I mean, obviously, we haven't had a declaration of war for a long time, but I don't even the ridiculous argument that Iraq was responsible for 9-11 when there's, <laughs> like, it's as if, whatever, there's no chance of, you know, nobody even really seriously argues that, but people associate it with their, in their minds. But Syria isn't even in that category, yet these guys drop these bombs on, on I mean, they are perforce innocent people because there's no letter of mark or reprisal and there's no declaration of war. Oh, yeah. Syria is just one of those scams that's just so unbelievable. They're there helping the population because uh, Assad used chemical weapons against his own people, both under Obama and under Trump. That's the official story. It's one of those that you just but he know absolutely is fake. didn't. You just know it's fake. And I can prove that. it. Is that because the OPCW report that Aaron Mate was talking about? Um, I, re I remember at the time, I'm like, I bet this is complete nonsense. And I look into it and I go, 
of course it's nonsense. Why was I insecure at all? And I ju I've just moved on. This crazy thing that I saw one time, I was watching Fox News and I saw them showing the chemical weapons stashes of Assad and it was in a cave covered in cellophane with like, like ribbons tied around it and stuff. And I was like, first of all, a state does not keep their weapons like that. And I said, you know, I've seen this video before and I found it like on press TV or something. It was a picture of the uh, like rebels, quote, who were caught using the chemical weapons because they blew themselves up and they had to go to the hospital. And that's what the footage was. It had uh, Qatari and German writing on the side of it. And this was what Fox News was saying was proof of Assad using chemical weapons. And in fact, it was proof of the Germans and the Qataris and the non-state actors in Syria blowing themselves up with chemical weapons they were storing in a cave. So I still have that video despite having been scrubbed on so many different platforms. But anyway, so I'm certain that was not true. And so then what's the answer? What's the, and, and so what? Like if he's using chemical weapons against his own people, like that's bad, chemical weapons are bad. But the argument is he violates their civil rights. So we're going to, we, we did this in Egypt too. We're going to blow, blow up their country. We're going to open all the prisons. All the people are going to come out of the prisons. This is all true stuff. They're going to come over to the United States and then we're going to have to suspend civil liberties because we have all these terrorists over yeah. here. Exactly. Yeah. With more, uh, m more than a few bones to pick. The, I got those numbers, by the way, off the Council on Foreign Relations website. It said Syria, 12,000, Iraq, 12,000, Afghanistan, 1,300, Libya, 496, Yemen, 35, Somalia, 14, and Pakistan, 3, for a total of 26,172. And we have to really be afraid of the voluntary sector because there's potential <laughs> for exploitation and mistreatment. One of the reasons that this uh, that this understanding of what the state is is so important is because so many people, instead of using uh, logic because the cost of being logical in something like politics is extremely high and can hurt the old ego every now and then, people are so confident in this thing called the state because, well, it helps with insert whatever they think it helps in, even though everything they'll say has been done privately at some point or another and done more efficiently. Once we tie something like child labor to capitalism, people are insecure about advocating capitalism. Even though child labor existed since the beginning of time, we have to tie the concept of war to the concept of the state so people know that anytime they're advocating something, they are, in effect, advocating for warfare policies. It's literally like saying, I am against racism, but I want the Klan to have a lot of money and a lot of power, but they have to be nice. Well, once you give them all this money, power, and the ability to control millions of people, uh, you've then taken away any check and balance that might exist to them not being nice. And who's attracted to that position of power? The greatest psychopaths on the uh, uh, on the planet. So that's why the Matt Gateses of the world and the AOCs of the world who say, yeah, we're anti-war and we're on the left or right or whatever Gates's position is now. To advocate um, uh, any anti-war position is completely inconsistent with advocating the existence of a state because even when there's not a direct war, all that means is the population is not protecting their own property because if they did defend themselves against the state during a time of issuing taxes or regulations, then the state actually will declare a state of war, all governments by definition, no matter if they're in Sweden or Norway or Luxembourg who we think of as nice governments, 
if you had a bad social media post in Australia, they arrested that pregnant woman on camera for uh, <laughs> questioning uh, the, the vaccine. They didn't let Lauren Southern, do, um, you know, go into a neighborhood because she would have uh, disrupted the peace because it was like completely run over by Islamists at that point. And she just wanted to get some footage. So governments are only not at war with you because you're not resisting them and resisting them means just engaging in the rights you already have that they just don't recognize. I would also go a little deeper and say that the existence of the war state is mutually corrupting with like what I call, you know, I, I try, I, I really, I hated to have to kind of give up on just using, proudly using the word capitalism because financial capitalism, corporatism, government, you know, um, supported capitalism has so corrupted the term. So I, I like to say free market entrepreneurship or free markets, whatever. It's so corrupted it by this uh, mutual relationship that in one of the articles that you quoted, Max Boot, he talks about how um, it has been a fiasco that war has cost us so much in blood and treasure. And I just, I had to question you know, it's only a fiasco if you're thinking of the people who start the wars as having the same purpose as the one that they sell to us. Mm -hmm. They sell to us that it's better for us. But in fact, it may be blood and treasure are the very things that they are after. Because think of the defense industry and how it profits from how many bombs. And now that I feel like war is kind of yielding a little bit to the medical system as the the founding you know enemy of society that that disease is now the health of the state they like to i mean i really feel like they, they you could probably find a smoking gun memo that says if we if we have enough ieds if we blow up enough arms and legs we can really perfect prosthetics which they did you know they did perfect prosthetics and I, I mean i've just seen too many of these inside docs to not know that they they think of that stuff in advance oh yeah uh, when it comes to, um, you know what, I'm, I'm moving too far ahead, but, but where'd you want to go next? Cause we got to get to that Sullivan thing. I haven't read it in like a month and I'm, I'm so curious as to what stood out to you. I have the, actually that is right on my thing. It says, um, I think it was a 2000, I don't know. Well, the, the, I don't, I forget what year it was from, but it's at, at chrono mark 50, 51, I think. 5051 on the Odyssey, your Odyssey video is the. Okay. So, uh, yeah, this was from this year when, uh, Sullivan was at the CFR and here's what he oh, said. Oh, was it? Because I have stuff from him, from your, uh, documentation of it like he's been th he's been around a long time i have stuff from 2012 of him saying things that had made aq your... is on our side in syria <laughs> yeah because yes, they were on the of... side of the people using the chemical <laughs> weapons the, the name of, of the group is Jabhat al-nusra which is al-qaeda in uh, in syria yes, all right so here's sullivan i i cut out a uh, small portion of this but we can read through it uh this year at the council on foreign relations he's uh been asked to summarize what is the national security strategy? He said, foreign policy, like all policy, is about trying to protect and defend our way of life and remembering that and then coming back to when we say our way of life, we mean the lives of regular people sitting around a dinner table tonight, wanting to lead a better, safer and easier life for themselves and for their kids. And what we basically say in the national security strategy 
is that we face two strategic challenges at once on an equal plane of importance. Geopolitical competition against two countries that do not share our vision for what the world should look like or for what a just society should look like. So in other words, he's saying we might have to go to war with China and Russia because they see the world differently. He doesn't even appeal to objective morality and say, here's where they're wrong. Here's where they're right. He just keeps it super vague. So at any point in the future, they can make reference to, well, this is outside of what we would like our way of life to be. How about medical lockdowns and mask mandates and vax mandates? Did that change our way of life at all? Uh, did uh, the Federal Reserve injecting trillions of dollars into the economy, which obliterated the savings of most people, did that have any effect on our way of life? I certainly agree there's a government threatening our way of life out there. And I think <laughs> Sullivan uh, gets his paycheck from there. That's a fantastic point. And, and when I think about the expression, the great reset, when you reset something, the registers all go to zero. Yeah. You don't reset something at like, you know, progress that has been made. You reset it. So they actually reset society, destroyed, undermined all of the things that he just, I mean, they were vague enough to start out with what he had to say. But even then, I, I agree with you, he did destroy it. But I really want to uh, examine this. Start, could you reread that thing, Defend Our Way of Life and People's Children and stuff like that? Reread that sentence, please, from what you just read. So we said, like all policies about trying to protect and defend our way of life and remembering that and then coming back to when we say our way of life, we mean the lives of regular people sitting around a dinner table tonight, wanting to lead a better, safer and easier life for themselves and for their kids. Okay, here's the problem. And I, I used to because I came from a real lower not lower class, lower middle class, whatever, blue collar family, youngest of nine, not well educated. Like my generation is definitely the first to go to college. Um, and that's a whole nother story. But, but I was raised with a really strong moral values. And also the people in my family were pretty smart, like they were drug addicts and stuff, but they were intelligent. So I had some respect for like the everyday person. Uh, but like, the more I see how simplistic propaganda is and actually works, like I start to lose faith in like demos <laughs> in like the people. Cause I read, I hear this, this sentence and he's saying, you know, people like he's creating imagery. Like this is straight out of a marketing thing. He's creating imagery. People are sitting around having dinner right now. They're there with their kids and all they want is a better, safer, easier life. And I would, I would argue no one has a right to any of that. All they have a right to is to not be molested. And, and he's, he's saying we get to molest other people because we just want these simple things that is not too much to ask, but we might have to molest people for it. And it's like, yeah, as if there aren't families that have dinner in Russia. I bet families have dinner in North frickin' Korea. So if your standard is people like having dinner sitting around the table and wanting things to be better, that's not a, a metric for uh, waging war. Could use the but opposite it and say, I mean, he couched that in a way that people are are going to be like, yeah, he's right. Yeah, well, I like uh, I'd hate to lose my table. I want to keep the table. I yeah, like dinner. And, I like the family. 
Oh, I like easy. Release the nukes on the uh, on Nanjing uh, if the, we have to. But actually, you know, it's not really that generic because, like, better and easier are you are the in my experience. If you want things to get better, it you have to work harder, right? So it's it's really he's actually setting up something impossible, and safer is not what you're getting when you're saying we have to we have this. We're justifying creating a hostile environment with powerful people. So the whole thing kind of falls apart, but no, but it's just, you know, it's, it sounds like platitudes, but really I, I hate it. It's like <laughs> satanic. Yeah. Well, now that uh, Ted Kaczynski's dead, you are keeping alive the message that safer doesn't mean easier. Short run <laughs> totally. benefits do not work great in the long run. Yes, I will have to. I, it's so hard to talk about Ted Kaczynski because he was so right in so many ways and then he goes and kills people and it's just undermines this argument. So you've got to wonder, given that he was probably an MK ultra victim, you know, you taint tainting that, that ideology was an effective way of keeping us from, uh, taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. But, but I, I don't want to get away from the next thing he said, what that you quoted him about, uh, the geopolitical thing and kind of ending with just society. Can you reread that sentence? And what we basically say in the national security strategy is that we face two strategic challenges at once on an equal plane of importance, geopolitical competition against two countries that do not share our vision of what the world should look like or for what a just society looks like. Now, how many times have we said that dog-eat-dog -dog competition of the marketplace is why the free market is so terrible and we actually need to cooperate? Governments are constantly competing with each other. Even within governments, there's elections which require a ton of competition. I think there's like 10 people running for the Republicans now. Chris Christie and Mike Pence. It's just like <laughs> yeah, there is constant competition, yet we always get blamed for this. And when you don't have to bear the cost of war, you are much more likely to turn those conflicts violent. And when there's a legal double standard. So this is another example of how war is the health of the state because you can't compete voluntarily. So you use coercion and then try to escalate it from there. So his argument, and this is just straight out of an actual or in just a merely attributed quote of to the original Rockefeller, first rich Rockefeller, John D., who said it's reported competition is a sin. Competition is a sin. And that's what led to trusts and all that kind of stuff. That's what led to his, I hate the expression robber barons because people, it sounds like just being um, successful in business is inherently immoral, but they actually did break rules. They actually defrauded, forced people to sell their businesses, undermined people's businesses so that they were forced to sell. They were terrible. They were truly immoral, but this guy just did not like competition at all. But in order to restrain competition uh, from industry to industry or across international borders is is in itself an act of violence. Because what are you doing? You're telling people you're he's justifying using force to keep other entities from employing their resources as they see fit. And he doesn't even say they're breaking rules. He's saying they don't share our vision. Well, and look at the set of incentives that the state has versus the marketplace. So before the Rockefellers were like Nelson and David, they were John D. Rockefeller. 
And we could see that someone who hated competition and wanted to be a monopolist, the way he did that was mostly through drastically decreasing the price of kerosene and having people switch from whale oil to kerosene. Yes, he did some terrible things. Terrible people will do terrible things in any society. The worst option is to have a society where there's terrible people and a state for them to occupy, where we have double standards for everything. So yes, there's always going to be people who hate competition and are very selfish. So the question is, which set of rules do we want to have for a society where that's going to exist? And having a state is the first thing you want to check off that list. I um, I might have shared this with you last time we talked, but I have this expression I coined, which is, Greed drives productivity and competition checks greed. Mm -hmm. So competition is why. So greed drives productivity. You're going to just go, go, go. And then if there's competition, you have that race to economic zero. If there's competition, the profits, you, you can get rich if you are the first mover or you think of something or you build a better mousetrap and then other people are going to enter that space and they're going to keep working in that space, driving prices down until entering that space is no longer appealing from a profit point of view. And that, that is why competition is actually super, super important in checking greed. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I love that one too. And, uh, so, so, the other thing that I thought was interesting about his sentence there is that they don't share our vision of what the world should look like. I mean, this guy is basically admitting that he is going to use force and the power of the state and his influence not only to uh, identify a vision that he says those other people don't share, but it's a vision not even of the world or of a value system, but what of the world should look like again, this imagery, and it's not based on objective rules. He doesn't describe it. Maybe he does later. Or I think his vision of what the world should look like is people eating dinner <laughs> with their yeah. children, which he doesn't even want. Honestly, I'm sure he doesn't even want people eating dinner with their children. No. And then he wants he says, the kids at like a drag queen story hour <laughs> where the parents right. sit in separate rooms and hate each other. Uh, yeah. Right. And the, and then the just society that he identifies, again, I mean, I, I really want to read these principles of a just war because he's not giving us the a just society. He's not telling me what a just society means. And, and, and a just society, again, like I object to this idea of vision and imagery. And what I want are objective rules that everybody has to follow um, and that they're extremely limited because they just mean, I mean, it always goes back to the same thing. All it means is you cannot aggress against other people. And if to the extent you need to like spell that out, don't touch me or my stuff, <laughs> you know, it's not that complicated. So he, but he doesn't talk about that. It's very nebulous. Exactly. So much of what they complain about, you could say is just violating the non-aggression principle when they're like, Look at uh, how these peaceful protesters were put down by the CCP. It's like, well, is it wrong to kick someone out of your house if you don't like what they're doing? What's the difference between walking up and, uh, you know, assaulting someone first getting them out of their house? Well, one initiates aggression and one is defensive. Um, every time they say a bad thing happened, uh, you can actually take it to the reality that uh, they're trying to sell people on the non-aggression principle in one way or another. They're saying these Absolutely. people are being violated against their will, whether it's Assad, Saddam, 
the Taliban, National Socialist Germany, uh, Soviet Russia. Uh, so for every reason that they use to justify the war is actually a reason not to engage in the war because we know the war without question is going to murder tons of innocent people and force people to fund it against their will. I totally agree with you that they always, and I used to say this on the radio, they're all false flags in themselves and all these arguments are always a nod to this inherent, this moral compass that we all have that you cannot use force. You cannot initiate force. Like they, they cannot eradicate it. They have to, they have to appease it. And a couple of the examples in your article, I think support that one is you were quoting from, uh, Spate's bombing vindicated. And he said our bombing of, well, I mean, this is a paraphrase of my notes, but basically our bombing German civilians were heroic and self-sacrificing, just like Russia's scorched earth policy. And I actually think that what he meant, if you want to suggest what you think he meant, go ahead. But I think I, I had a, a hunch. So, uh, he, uh, yeah, I do, do have it right here. It's from 1944. Uh, the book is called Bombing Vindicated. J.M. Spate was the principal secretary for the air ministry. And in the book, he says, because we were doubtful about the psychological effect of propagandist distortion of the truth, that it was we who started the strategic bombing offensive, we have shrunk from giving our great decision of May 11th, 1940, the publicity which it deserves. It was a splendid decision. It was as heroic, as self-sacrificing as Russia's decision to adopt her policy of scorched earth. So many people, I just heard Michael Sartain lie about this the other day. The assumption is... Germany uh, initiated bombing against uh, Britain and declared war. So, first of all, it was Neville Chamberlain who declared war September 3rd, 1939 against Germany for, uh, for invading, invading uh, the I, uh, city of yeah. Danzig, uh, which was like right, which 95%. was 95% German because of World War One and because of the treaty. Yeah, I've read that that the Polish or I don't even you know Poland is a country that has had very fluid borders and national identity, but um, that they were abusive to the German people there who lived there. Well, yeah, I mean at the the Versailles Treaty pinned almost yeah. all of the First World War, one of the greatest tragedies ever, on one group of people, almost to the exclusion of all others. Not the Russians who said that they'd back Serbia no matter what. Not Austria. Uh, the Austrian Empire, the Habsburgs, who declared the war in the first place against the Serbs. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it was uh, ridiculous. Um, and then it was, I believe, May 15th, 1940, where uh, Britain started, uh, I forget the exact name, but they uh, initiated the uh, strategic bombing offensive against Germany. The German response, the Blitz, came in September yes. of 1940. So, right. so many people have that backwards, and right. that's why they never give you the dates. They just said, well, he was trying to take over the world, as always. As far yes. as what he's trying to say, that just stands out to me as, hey, we should start bragging about this stuff. By the way, yeah, not only is it true, we, we did start it, we should be bragging about it. I don't know what else to make of that. Yeah, no, I think, so yes, Churchill was the first one to do civilian bombing and. From what I recall, having dug a little deeper into that too, the so what I think he was saying there, because he is likening that attack on German civilians with Russia's scorched earth policy, where Russia burned its own 
earth. It scorched its own earth. It suffered itself. It killed its own livelihood to repel the enemy. I think what he's saying is they were intentionally provoking the blitz. They were intentionally sacrificing English civilians so that they could justify the war and that he was doing that, that they, they, they were doing that as some higher purpose. Now, that, but part of all of that was this propaganda lie. And he's saying, we can't tell them that we did it, but it was masterful because it got the war effort moving. But it all, that kind of stuff always assumes that there, that the war was the right thing. That if, if, if we hadn't forced you all into this anti-Hitler war, what would the world look like? And my mother who lived through it said, uh, said everything they told us Hitler wanted, we gave to Stalin anyway. Mm -hmm. It was behind the Iron Curtain anyway. So we did not fight that war and win for freedom. We fought it really and and won it for communism. Well, and that's one of the great things where they say, you know what, never Chamberlain is a coward because he didn't declare war on Germany after they took a portion of Czechoslovakia. So then they eventually go to war over Poland. 50 million people die. And then Stalin gets the Sudetenland and all of Czechoslovakia and Poland and Bulgaria and Hungary and Romania and all these other countries after the tens of millions of deaths. And the Sudetenland was another place that was mostly German. Yes. You know what? I, I, I forgot to look at those numbers, but all of the sources on Danzig, I, just because Danzig started it yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. No, the Sudetenland, um, I know for a fact. And then the other quote that I use, just because it's so important to take away the Churchill mythology, so many people will develop their you know admiration for the state or the military because they have a sort of a narrative in their head as opposed to the reality of the situation or the logistics. C.P. Snow was a science advisor to the royal government, and he wrote Science and Government, the Godkin Lectures at Harvard in 1961. And he was talking about what their policy was uh, by Frederick Lindemann, who was advising Winston Churchill on what to do about this upcoming bombing offensive. The paper laid down a strategic policy. The bombing must be directed, especially against German working class houses. Middle class houses have too much space around them and so are bound to waste bombs. The paper claimed that given a total concentration of effort on the production and use of bombing aircraft, it would be possible in all the larger towns of Germany, that is those with more than 50,000 inhabitants, to destroy 50% of all the houses. It's like, look, 9-11 was a freaking tragedy, 3,000 innocent deaths, I completely agree, but they're talking about tens of thousands of civilians who were already victimized by the National Socialist government. It was the only option they had, any more than I would hold you responsible for what <laughs> Joe Biden does in <laughs> yeah. Ukraine, Afghanistan, Yemen, or Syria. Um, uh, th there's just no reason to uh, have these people be our heroes, uh, Ch Churchill uh, especially. I want to tell you about this book I am holding. We're not doing videos. So nobody can see it, but there isn't much to see except that you can tell that it's old. But I was um, reminded of this book because of the way that Spate quote that you were reading talks about what I was reading as being a provocation. And I think you talk about it actually – uh, the Day of Deceit, I think, is a book that you refer to in a 1940 memo about, uh, I think, I know it had to do with Pearl Harbor, but 
and you point out, which I think people don't realize, that Hawaii wasn't even a state. It was really a military outpost. And what we had done, oh, I think, I think the memo that you were citing talks about all the things that we should do to provoke a Japanese attack. And the one thing that they absolutely could not live with, it was it was suicide for them to just sit back and live with it, was the our oil embargo, because they were at war. I mean, I, I think it was not justified. First, they were knee-deep in stuff with China, too, which is, I think, from the outside, looked totally unjustified, like an invasion. I'm not saying that they were justified in doing it, mm-hmm. but that they were at war and they needed that oil and we were supposedly neutral yet we enforced an embargo which is economic sanctions are an act of war especially when it when they were engaged in a war where they needed those economics and uh and this book i have here is called back door to war which is actually still in print amazingly and it is just riddle it's just full of state department documents but why it's interesting to me is i inherited this when my father died out of his library, it is a first edition from 1952, I believe. And my father fought in the South Pacific, in the Pacific Ocean. He was in the Navy in that last year of the war. And this, I think, came out in 1952. And boy, was he disillusioned. So he was a volunteer. He actually lied to get into the Navy, I think, because he had bad eyes or was too young or something. And it was about they provoked it, that FDR was just sitting there, did not have a lot of mobility because he was in a wheelchair. He this um, he was getting reports of the bombing. He kind of knew or people definitely knew it was coming and allowed it to happen at the very, very least. And, uh, and it was a provocation. I was always taught that that's what it was. And I feel like, you know, that kind of lie, you can respond to that. But I would also say, is there any any justification for for lying to us for our own good. Like, does that, does that, does that ever hold water? In very few situations, I would say there are noble lies and the state is at the bottom of that list for uh, (laughs) who's engaged in noble lies. When my grandma said I looked handsome the day of my bar mitzvah, and I obviously didn't because I was breaking out everywhere. All right. Noble lie. Uh, a lie that gets 400,000 Americans killed and millions conscripted to get their limbs blown off. Not noble lie. Guess not I, noble. I can't develop a formula off the bat, but we could take it on a case by case basis. So <laughs> the reason Pearl Harbor is so vitally important, because I talk in there, uh, I know you've uh, spoken a lot about 9-11, um, that even the official story is verifiably wrong. Bush says September 20th, 2001 to Congress. They hate what they see in this chamber right here, our democratically elected government. Bin Laden's own words and Zawahiri's own words explicitly say we're fighting them because of the bombing and sanctions in Iraq, the bombing and support of Israel of the Palestinians, as well as occupying the land of the two sanctuaries. So the 9-11 one we deal with, but because you mentioned Pearl Harbor, um, this is the other one that says, well, you can't be isolationist, just sit back and let things like Pearl Harbor happen. It's important to know that one organization in America intentionally provoked this. And it happened to be the state because the state is the health of war and they had every reason to provoke it. First piece of evidence that I have is from January 2nd, 1972. The New York Times publishes a paper titled, a uh, article titled War Entry Plans Laid to Roosevelt. What happened was the uh, British War Cabinet came out and released a number of their papers. And this is what Churchill said about his meeting with Roosevelt in Canada in August of 1940. He said, he, Roosevelt, 
obviously was determined that they should come in. The president had said he would wage war, but not declare it, that he would become more and more provocative. If the Germans did not like it, they could attack American forces. The president's orders to these U.S. Navy escorts were to attack any German U-boat, which showed itself, even if it were two or three hundred miles away from the convoy. Everything was to be done to force an incident. The president had taken this very well and made it clear that he would look for an incident which would justify him in opening hostilities, Churchill told the war cabinet according to the minutes of the meeting. So we know that Roosevelt is on board with bringing America into this, even as he's saying, I will not send your sons to die in another European war. And the way he's going to get them into it is not to just go and declare a war, but to force an incident. This one was against the Germans, but uh, we know what actually happened. Second piece of evidence, which is vitally important. This is according to Pearl Harbor, the story of the secret war by George Morgenstern, published in 1947. And he's talking about Henry Stimson's diaries. Henry Stimson was the Secretary of War at the time. More honest name than Secretary of Defense. <laughs> but yes. um, So uh, he has his diaries. These diaries can be found at Yale University because uh, Stimson was a Skull and Bones member. On November 25th, 1941, 13 days before Pearl Harbor, Stimson says... There, the president brought up entirely the relations with the Japanese. He brought up the event that we were likely to be attacked, perhaps as soon as next Monday. For the Japanese are notorious for making an attack without warning. And the question was what we should do. The question was how we should maneuver them into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. He then goes on to say, Wow, because we had the ships moved. Yes, yes. Um, now, uh, right, the, a lot the, of the fleet was out of the harbor that day. The uh, final piece that you mentioned is from Robert Sternett in his 1999 book, Day of Deceit. He's citing a memo by Arthur McCullum, who was a naval intelligence officer. He wrote this in 1940. And the reason we have to believe that this was not just some kook is because the things that are actually in this memo are things the government actually engaged in. So it says, It is not believed that in the present state of political opinion, the United States government is capable of declaring war against Japan without more ado. And it is barely possible that vigorous action on our part might lead the Japanese to modify their attitude. Therefore, the following course of action is suggested. He lists a number of things. Here's a few. Give all possible aid to the Chinese government of Chiang Kai-shek. Send a division of long-range heavy cruisers to the Orient, Philippines, or Singapore. Keep the main strength of the U.S. fleet in the Pacific in the vicinity of the Hawaiian Islands. Finally, completely embargo all U.S. trade with Japan in collaboration with a similar embargo imposed by the British Empire. This is what became the Export Control Act of That's 1940. Crazy. He ends the memo by saying, purpose. by saying, if by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. At all events, we must be fully prepared to accept the threat of war. And uh, the Pearl Harbor myth is what allows things like Operation Meeting House, murdering 100,000 civilians in Tokyo of March of 1945, to go on. And people will cheer that stuff on. They'll cheer on Hiroshima and Nagasaki because those damn Japs just attacked us for no reason out of nowhere as we were sitting here minding our own business. This is the power of historical narratives. And the, and the Japanese that 
what I was taught just in good faith from, I, I don't know, one of my siblings was saying, well, you know, if we hadn't dropped those bombs, we would have had to invade them and like a million people would have died. And, you know, they just wouldn't surrender, but they wouldn't surrender their emperor, which they never did. They, every single one of them would have died. So that unconditional surrender is a lie too. And the whole thing was a lie. Uh, so uh, two things I want to say about what you've said and then I mean, I could go another hour, but let's wrap it up after that, unless you have other stuff. But let me just say two things. One is that it still amazes me when I do, I do talk to kind of old school leftists who just simply believe in a different um, ideology of government, but absolutely have like a, an, a, an aversion to war for sure. And they still love FDR. And it, it just, it amazes me that how, that he still remains there their example of like the good socialist, you know, president. It's weird to me. It's really difficult because you realize that in order to, you know, get one omelet, you have to crack like a trillion eggs. And it's like, look, okay, we got social security, <laughs> something that we like. Right. But you also had the Gold Confiscation Act and the Japanese internment and intentionally provoking Pearl Harbor and military conscription and uh, civilian bombings in uh, Germany and Japan. Well, mostly Japan. It was the Royal Air Force in Germany. But, uh, I mean, uh, it, it, it's unbelievable. Even his New Deal, which they brag about, created the Double Dip Recession of 1937, which that they of never course. mentioned. They just say that, well, there was a New Deal and then we got back on our feet and everything was good again. So it's uh, it's impossible it, to believe that he was acting in good faith for me. It's it, it's a perfect example of how it's not that things are so hard for people to understand what the average person's looking for are heroes to admire and villains to hate. And so I think what our great role in the freedom movement is is to give people alternative heroes like um the Wright brothers uh the Wright brothers are going up against the federal government. And I believe it was called the Langley project where the government was trying to make, uh, an aerial plane. Uh, I, I believe, uh, the, what they were calling it at the time and two bicycle shop owners completely fight out the federal government and they become victorious. And Cornelius Vanderbilt drastically decreases the cost of people getting to travel on steamships and railroads and frankly, Jeff Bezos has drastically increased <laughs> everyone's ability to access products and services in, in in an absolutely fantastic way. I'm not condoning any of those. The Bezos one is totally off the top of my head. The point is, there's a lot fewer caveats with admiring Jeff Bezos than there is for FDR. And so long as you advocate a state that monopolizes violence, there's no way. I, I mean, guys that I like, Ron Paul voted for uh, the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore, like has people beat uh, almost to a pulp for if they're caught smoking ciggarettes. And oh, Deng wow. Xiaoping is the Tiananmen Square murderer who I like from China. A anyone I try to <laughs> oh like. Yes, there are no heroes. But I, uh, I actually, <clears throat> can I impose upon you for just a few more minutes? I'm sorry, impose. I wanted to give you, okay, great. So two things. Um, I obviously, we did say about 9-11, totally, in my opinion, an inside job. Osama bin Laden was, uh, they used to call them Osama's Afghans because he was the operative over there for Charlie Wilson's war, all of that. And then yet he says stuff like, 
we're doing this because they are bombing us. Like he says stuff that makes it seem like he's on the other side. And as you were speaking, I just had this insight that he was doing the same thing we were talking about earlier, which is he, he was a provocateur. He was a provocateur. And in order to get his side to feel self-righteous, to feel like they needed to act, he had to express it as self-defense. He couldn't argue. He could not mobilize his Afghans if he said, look at those people eating dinner with their kids hoping for a better life. Let's just, we, we have got to do something about this. Are those blue jeans? Tell me they're not <laughs> listening to Metallica. No, that can't be Metallica. <laughs> so even if he was working for us, the only way to gin up that conflict was to appeal to their sense of self-defense which I would argue is a, is a you know, moral imperative. And uh, because I said earlier that I would read off the, the, the um, tenets of a just war, it's actually pretty short. I'm horrified to say that the easiest place for me to find it is from BBC, <laughs> the BBC. Uh, but anyway, it just lists it very quickly. What is a just war? Six conditions must be satisfied for a war to be considered just. They are... One, the war must be for a just cause. I mean, that does seem a little subjective, but it's uh, not. Okay. You and I, if you that's and I where would you're agree. starting with. Yeah, the- it's not actually. See, that's why I want the, I want the one that I've read more deeply, which is American interests abroad is not a just cause. A just cause is when you are being your person or your property are being threatened imminently. You know, that's where, so they, they're not going to say this, but the other ones are kind of interesting. The war must be lawfully declared by a lawful authority. That's kind of interesting. The intention behind the war must be good. Like without all the, you know, pages and pages of, of nuance of, you know, um, uh, is it Salamanca? Whatever. There's just some, a lot of like moral thought that goes into this on from both Protestants, Catholics, and like across the spectrum of religions and moral thinkers, uh, to tease out what's a just cause, what is good. Um, but it also says other ways of resolving the problem should have been tried first. Uh, there must be a reasonable chance of success and the means used must be in proportion to the end that the war seeks to achieve. So if 3000 people are killed on nine 11, you, uh, you might not be able to kill a million people, a hundred thousand children, as Madeline Albright said, was, you know, a price worth paying. Or maybe well, that was yeah, even before nine eleven. <laughs> that might have been the provocation. Important because, uh, it's important because, um, but people will say um, that uh, the way you can uh, engage in a war is you have to use the minimal necessary force to achieve your end. So sometimes bad things happen, but you have to prove that it's the minimal necessary to yep. achieve whatever end you have. There is actually a great opposition to this, which a lot of people. Uh, have embraced Madeleine Albright's a perfect example. And that's the they started it principle. So mm-hmm. the fact that Saddam invaded Kuwait means they could literally have which killed 500,000, <laughs> um, uh, which they literally yeah. could have killed 500,000. And according to them, I think that number's heavily exaggerated. I mean, I- I've heard bin Laden say 500,000 to 2 million. Um, I think the number's like 10,000, but Scott Horton uh, has pitched me his reasoning for that. Either way, 10,000 kids starving to death as a cause or result of a blockade. Oh, that is quite evil. Um, so, uh, yeah, th- that, of course, has nothing to do with it. That wouldn't fall under the category of minimal necessary force. So what they say instead is, well, it wasn't necessary technically, but they started it. You don't like the firebombing of Tokyo and Operation right. Meeting House? Look. 
the Japanese did Pearl Harbor. What do, what do you want from us? My hands were tied, Curtis LeMay probably says. <laughs> So I would I would go back and I this is just one of those cases where sometimes I see a, a litany of arguments from people like Jake Sullivan trying to explain the principle that they now follow and every single example they use is something that I have concluded was a false flag. Similarly, like everything they say that is a provocation, we provoked, we insisted that Kuwait over um you know, slurp on its straw of oil that it was sharing with Kuwait, uh, with Iraq. Like we were provoking Kuwait. And when Hussein said, you know, whatever, it's a big, long story, but he was absolutely, he asked us permission to invade Kuwait. And April she, Glaspie, I think her name yes, was. Yeah, exactly. And she mm-hmm. gave it. She said, we would just not consider that our affair is what she, she said. She gave him the green light. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, another tenet, that was the six, but this is once you have a just war, what do you do? How can you fight it? Innocent people and non-combatants should not be harmed. So killing innocent civilians so that you can provoke them killing your innocent civilians like Spate, I think, was getting at is absolutely wrong. Only appropriate force should be used and international conventions uh, must be obeyed. So, I mean, there are rules about this, but yeah, the whole good and just thing. He's, again, Sullivan is trying to suggest that 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 he's following those guidelines by saying you're eating dinner is something in order to protect your dinner. We have to bomb China because they compete with us, like literally compete with us. <laughs> Just it's nuts because competition is fine. Like, you know, invasion is bad. Anywho, so. So the, the, the thing we can end on and the reason I obsess over the Second World War is it's seen as the holy war that no yes. one could ever question. Even the American Revolution does not get as much reverence. And because the Second World War has one great villain, it's mentioned more so than the Civil War, whereas it's the American South in the Civil War. Here is what Winston Churchill said to Monica's point about everything we said Hitler might do, we proudly gave to uh, Stalin. Yeah, Stalin, yeah. Churchill wrote in March of 1948, he published six books. Uh, The first one is titled The Gathering Storm. And in the preface, Churchill says, the human tragedy reaches its climax in the fact that after all the exertions and sacrifices of hundreds of millions of people and the victories of the righteous cause, we still not have, we have still not found peace or security and that we lie in the grip of even worse perils than those we have surmounted. So the war that they won't stop bragging about that killed tens of millions of people led them, according to Winston Churchill, in a worse place than they otherwise would have been. And now they want to provoke a world war with Russia over Ukraine and with China over Taiwan. Their best examples are absolutely terrible. We got to do everything we can. Uh, Let's use the minimal necessary amount of force to stop a third (laughs) world war from happening. I would argue that that statement by Churchill was in an effort to provoke a third world war. Oh, of course. I mean, when you yeah. have something like this, it's like, look, well, like, we, hey, don't we want can keep this, this thing happen, going, but here's where we are. <laughs> and now, you know, it, it's just like saying, oops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, look, healthcare prices are higher than ever. Really? After Obamacare, after Medicaid, after Medicare, uh, yeah. and after all of these uh, right. assisted programs, they're like, yeah, it's <laughs> worse than more. ever. That's why we need more. <laughs> People are dying at the VA. Doesn't the control? Doesn't the government control the entire VA? Yeah, <laughs> that's why we need more funding and a bigger government. Hello. Oh, I, I want to keep. Uh, I love the pace. I love your research and everything. I want to keep hearing about the topics you cover and the research you do. I want you to come back 
whenever you want. I really, I really appreciate it. I think we're privileged to have you present all this in such a fast pace and uh, concise manner. Well, uh, at the Libertarian Institute, our goal is to create a free educational home so people um, who, uh, you know, the progressives always say, I believe in free education and charge you $500 per textbook. <laughs> um, we at the Libertarian Institute believe in free education. We want you to be able to go to our site and check out the news column to hopefully combat the Council on Foreign Relation Narratives. Or you can go to the search engine and type in things like Churchill, agricultural subsidies, healthcare, minimum wage, 9-11, Al-Qaeda. Monica Perez is even in there because she's been on my show a number of <laughs> times. Is. We are trying to create a free edu uh, educational archive. Check us out at libertarianinstitute.org. And especially help yourself to a free copy of the Voluntarist Handbook. Out of habit, I, of course, bring it to the camera that no one's going to see. But I the Voluntarist oh, yeah, Handbook <laughs> is a... You'll find a free PDF on libertarianinstitute.org. And those are the 50 articles and essays that took me from being a progressive to being a libertarian. I hope people enjoy it. Uh, I like the, I didn't know about the news, the little news widget you have. I've always, I always love that. I really like to be able to just access some headlines and uh, from a libertarian perspective. So that's fun. I'm going to start checking that on the regular. So I appreciate that little tidbit. And hopefully we can see you again soon. And Keith, why don't you, I mean, we kind of already did, but what are the best places for people to find your um, videos or podcasts? So I'm on all the podcatchers, uh, but the one place that I like people to, uh, to subscribe is odyssey.com. And website is libertarianinstitute.org. That's where all my stuff is. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Keith. And thank you all for listening. This has been a deep dive with Monica Perez. Monica Perez.